0: Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we look at the future of learning here. I am Jeff Young, a reporter and editor at Ed Surge. The tech world is teeming with metaphors. You might say the way the ocean is teeming with fish. Yeah. Sometimes these metaphors are helpful for understanding new innovations and ideas. But other times they can be up to something else as a tool of persuasion trying to bend the narrative. This week, we are looking at how metaphors shape tech in education. There are many metaphors of edtech out there, and sometimes we might not even realize that a metaphor is there. If you think about it, an online lecture, it's really a metaphor, using the tradition of teaching in front of a classroom to describe teaching in an online video format, which is not the same thing. In fact, there are so many EdTech metaphors that a professor even created a random EdTech metaphor generator to poke fun at this trend. I'm going to call up that generator right now on my laptop. Um, Let's see. Here's one. What does chasing a cat tell us about flipped learning? Okay, give me another. What does Homer's The Iliad tell us about learning analytics? I'm going to do another one here. Use the Loch Ness Monster myth as a metaphor for student-generated content. Okay. This week, we are talking to a professor who has spent a lot of time pondering the metaphors of edtech and taking them seriously to understand their impact. He's Martin Weller, and he just wrote a book called Metaphors of EdTech. His day job is as a professor of educational technology at Open University in England, and he also keeps a blog called edtechie.net. He is actually the one who made that random edtech metaphor generator for his blog originally. The book is playful at times, but it also has some suggestions for educators on how to best sift through metaphors and make smart decisions about what technology best works for their actual situation. I started the conversation by jumping in with what I found to be the most surprising metaphor in the book. You say there is an aspect of edtech today that compares to the fascination that some british folks um some wealthy british folks had for fairy tale castles in the victorian <laughs> That's era correct yeah so okay so rich people were building fairy tale castles and somehow we should think about that in edtech walk us through <laughs> what right. these castles have to do with today's technology in education
1: i mean is it not obvious jeff i mean come on it's like, okay yeah so i'll start i live by a castle i i live in wales and I like to tell all my American friends that all professors have their own castles, you know. Like, But I lived by a castle uh, in Wales, uh, and it was built by the, uh, I think, the third Marquis of Bute back in the uh, Industrial Age, who was like the wealthiest man in the country, if not the, the world, because of the big kind of uh, coal industry then. Uh, and he wanted to build a, a fairy tale castle that were kind of like the Romantic castles. Um, and so he built this thing on the site of an old castle that had been there since the 11th century, um, and it was mainly just going to be a hunting lodge. It's kind of and it looks fantastic. It looks like something you know from from Germany. Those kind of like, imagine you could see this
0: with, out your win- you can see this still.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So I can see it out my window here. Yeah, yeah, it's right. Yeah, it's cool. And you can go and visit it. You know, and it's lovely. It's pretty. But uh, the metaphor I make is that partly these people were coming into money then, and um, during the industrial they were coming into
0: so they were the new rich at the
1: time. Yes, right. They were kind of like you know, and there was a lot of people around then who were coming into extreme wealth. You know. Um, and they wanted to try and... And they were at the time, they were very worried about revolution. We'd had um, the Chartists and the Labour movements in, in Wales. Uh, there'd been riots over in, in West Wales, what we called the Rebecca riots, which is another uh, metaphor in the book. There'd been an uprising in Ireland. And they were seriously worried about, you know, uh, people sort of turning against the aristocracy and these people with, with money. So what they... part of what they wanted to do is... Well, I think, you know, he genuinely loved this kind of... He was a medievalist. He kind of genuinely loved this stuff. But you, part of what this castle does is it symbolises that, you know, they're here, there's permanence, you know, we've got stature, almost like, don't question us, we've been around forever, here's this castle, and you can see the castle all the way into Cardiff, so you're kind of like, reminded of it everywhere you look, and it's like, here's this estate, here's this, and he's got Cardiff Castle as well. They have these castles, uh, they have this castle, and it can be seen into Cardiff. So it's kind of a constant reminder, you know, that this is immutable power, don't question it, it's not new stuff, you know, it's been there forever. Kind of, It's all part of the order, don't question it. And so my metaphor here, um, after quite a nice long detour about the history of castles and Wales and things, which I think is interesting in itself uh, in the book, is that it's a lot how um, I think Silicon Valley kind of new money, those kind of newly wealthy people are always trying to get into education. There's something appealing about it beyond just the kind of money that it offers, you know, and education is a very rich area They think for getting into. So, you know, Zuckerberg, uh, Apple, all these people. Yeah. Like so, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They all want to get into this kind of area and, and get into education and Google and stuff because, you know, Bill Gates, there's mon- there's, exactly. Yeah. There's money to be made there, but also I think there's a status for them. It's kind of, it's part of that same desire to be saying, look, you know, education is a social good. It's been around for ages. We're part of that thing. Almost don't question us where we've come from. It gives them credibility. And so part of my pitch there was, I think often, uh, you know, I work in university. Often I think in, in higher education, people think that, they're kind of the kind of silicon valley tech giants are coming to do us a favor but they want something from us too as as well as as well as the money they kind of want this prestige and we shouldn't sell that lightly i don't think you know it's kind of, we're giving them something in that exchange and so don't think that they're kind of doing you a favor so that was my my long-winded way of getting a, a castle in wales into my metaphors book which <laughs>
0: I did learn a little bit about castles and appreciated it, but no, that's a really interesting point. And you Mm -hmm. do. Yeah. You do certainly notice. I mean, I will, I will say in all full disclosure, Ed surge has, has, you know, receives grants from the Chan Zuckerberg initiative and, and the has from the Gates foundation in the past. And Mm -hmm. these, these companies are, you know, doing a lot of, of positive things in, in, in education and, you know, supporting a lot of projects and, um, of course, we're also as a newsroom questioning some of the other work they're doing, but but yeah. they are they are everywhere. They're everywhere. They're yeah. you know in the education space. These same entrepreneurs building the the edtech platforms and the tech platforms. It seems.
1: Yeah, so, That's right.
0: it, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, and so you can you, you get to see them everywhere you go. Like in the same so way you see the castle everywhere you go. It's kind of you, you can't you can't escape it in a way. You know, it's like in a digital space. It's, it's interesting, kind of what the what the equivalents of that is. I think. You know?
0: Oh, that's really yeah, that's really interesting, and so the the a sort of a follow up um, metaphor that you talk about a little bit is something from a different genre of rewilding.
1: Yeah. Um. Right.
0: And and what do you do when uh when a I I maybe I let you you say more about it, but if if you're if a, if you do want to return a a castle or a, a sort of something that's been put in the landscape to a more natural state, what is the way to do it?
1: Yeah, so um, and I don't proclaim to be an expert. My my book covers like many different metaphors, and you know, I try to get, do them all justice. But you know, obviously, I'm, I'm no expert across all these different areas. There's 14th century Czech priests in there and all sorts of things. But um, as, you know, as far as I understand, rewilding, um, you know, there's been a movement recently over the past few years, kind of around overly managed ecosystems, um, and people saying they want to kind of where you haven't got much variety in in trees fauna fauna, all those kind of things and it's so what they want to do is kind of increase that diversity and one way you do that is through rewilding and that can either be i think a kind of bottom-up process where you introduce uh sort of crops and uh naturally growing plants that used to be there but aren't there anymore you know you think of farming and, and how we've only got a, a very kind of select few crops and you introduce kind of different types of plants and then hope that the, the wildlife comes that feeds off them or it could be more top down and introduce kind of large scale predators, and I think a famous example is the the wolves in uh, in Yellowstone. Um, and and what happens then is what they call a trophic cascade. So by introducing these things, you get a change that then occurs throughout the ecosystem and it has a knock on effect. Um, and that's a kind of really interesting way to think about how we interact with with ecosystems. We go to places we think are natural, but well, often they're kind of very very managed. You know, um, and introducing some more wild elements is, is is not without risk, you know, obviously, but it kind of helps as has a knock-on effect throughout the whole ecosystem. And I think that's interesting to think about in terms of our educational technology. You know, I think when uh, the internet was new and we were sort of just thinking about e-learning and stuff sort of towards the end of the 90s, maybe, it was really kind of like, Everyone doing their own thing, creating their own web pages, often terribly designed and everything. You know? But everyone was kind of being. Very I remember experimental. those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> everyone was being very experimental. Um, but then we brought in the VLE or LMS, um, and there was a good reason to do that. It kind of provided a, a uniform platform for us to kind of think about and to offer training for staff and students. knew they could go between different courses, you know, and get the same experience. But then, right, so the about, learning
0: management systems became a, yeah. this thing that we now, like the blackboards and, right. the and canvas and all this.
1: They've become a kind of equivalent of this kind of monoculture or kind of very strictly controlled ecosystem. Um, and I think it's interesting Now we've got to a certain point with e-learning and, and online learning where maybe we can start thinking about rewilding, introducing some of those more uncontrollable elements or a slightly more uh, greater diversity in our online education ecosystem and think about you know what what other bits can we add in that would cause a change throughout or get people to think differently about how they teach online how they learn online so I mentioned some examples in the book but I think it's just kind of an interesting you know metaphor to think about having very kind of controlled systems and how you introduce a bit more freedom and and expansion into those
0: it sounds like it can be hard to do in in practice even though it sounds good theoretically to have a little more you know wilding and, and innovation around Um, a world that's becoming standardized with platforms. Um, But it sounds like you talk about there's maybe it's, it's actually maybe harder to do in practice than in reality.
1: Yeah. And I think we have to be careful of, you know, our students, our learners. It's like it's when we think about back to those early e-learning days and it used to be every course you go into was like a different platform. You'd spend Half of the course learning, what was how did this platform work? And it wasn't very robust, and it'd fall down as you're trying to submit your assignment. You kind of you want those robust systems when you're a student. You kind of don't want to be spent There's nothing more frustrating, particularly if you're learning online at a distance. You know than just being blocked out by the technology itself. You know you kind of want the technology to be invisible. So there's a certain comfort in having that uniform stuff. But I think by introducing some elements in there, so I, I think I talk about. Uh, splot in the book uh, which is this kind of easy way of creating blog posts and things by just using a form that kind of lowers some of that threshold to participation and and making that part of the learning experience for students you know students are going to be going out to work and operating in digital environments you know they're not going to have a carefully controlled environment all the time you can actually make it you know part of your student outcomes to experience these different things but I do think it needs to be kind of carefully managed and and that's true of rewilding in, in the real world too you know they didn't just introduce a bunch of wolves and say hey let's see what happens you know let's see if people get killed or not you know they they, they approached it very carefully you know and it's been a big success but you know it wasn't just kind of done without without thought and planning you
0: know. well now i think we have a sense our listeners have a, a sense of what you're kind of getting at in your in your use of metaphors but how did you come let's back up a minute and how did you come to do a whole book where you're exploring metaphors of edtech
1: yeah so um a few years ago, uh, so I, as you mentioned at the start, I keep a blog called edtechy.net. And um, a few years ago, I wrote a book called 25 Years of EdTech, which is um, based on a series of blog posts where I took um, one technology from each year, sort of for the past 25 years, and, and sort of really tried to think about how that had been significant for uh, educational technology. And it was just an interesting way, I think, to try and tell a, a narrative around educational technology. And I was trying to refute the claim about, you know, higher education never changes they never do any innovation you know this kind of stuff and sort of trying to demonstrate this um and in many ways this is like a companion piece although it kind of stands alone um and i I similarly on my blog i often use metaphors to try and explore things you know And i think it works quite well in a blog it's a kind of playful space i think i got to a certain point i've got you know quite a few of these and that would make quite a nice way to explore ed tech and i think um there's a theory you know that as human beings, the way we come to understand a subject is either through narrative or through metaphor and if you like the twenty five years of edtech book is the is the narrative approach to understanding uh, edtech, and the metaphors book is the metaphorical approach to understanding it and I think it gives us an insight and just a way of thinking about kind of educational technology
0: you, you feel like there's it seems like the there' are positive and negative mm-hmm. aspects of of these metaphors though right yeah, it seems like they can yeah. be they can be instruments of control or they could be kind of um uh, rallying points for people doing more things you might agree with in your in your view, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I tried to be careful not to say like, hey, metaphors are always great, you know, because um there's some research in uh, psychology and other fields, for instance, about how metaphors can shape our solutions. So in this psychology experiment, they gave um different groups of, of subjects uh, metaphors about crime, one being that crime was like a disease, and one was being that crime was like a monster in a community. What was the second one? It's either a a disease or a what? A a monster. Monster. (laughs) Beast, a creature. That's my my accent. Uh, And so depending on which one they'd had, which one they'd been exposed to in terms of this, then those people would come up with different solutions as to how to solve crime um, in that community. And I think often we have that in, you see that politicians do that all the time. They sort of will present things in terms of a metaphor and then their solution seems like the obvious answer to that. And you often see that in uh, in technology as well. You know, people will talk about, present things as a problem in a metaphorical sense. And then lo and behold, their solution happens to be the best one to solve this thing. And before you know it, you've kind of been sold a metaphor that seems logical. And often we don't even realise we are being sold a metaphor, I think. Um, and then, oh, that does seem like the obvious solution to that problem you've just presented me with. Um, and so in some ways, part of the book is about kind of helping people get their defences up, you know, <laughs> how to spot this, how to spot when you're being sold a, sold a metaphor and to think critically about that, you know, and, and other ways of, of approaching it. Um, but also I wanted to kind of suggest that um, you know often our attitude and relationship with education technology is quite dry and quite boring. We have roadmaps and spreadsheets and stakeholder consultations and stuff, you know, and I wanted to kind of explore a way of just being more creative about that, you know. It's like not in, in a university, college, or uh, or company or whatever, you might talk about, you know, how we're going to roll out a new technology to support this, and we'll talk about functionality and those kind of things. But we really sit down and think about it in terms of metaphors, and maybe that might be a useful thing to do, you know. What is the VLE or the LMS to you? How do you think about it? Because often people have these kind of mental models about something, and that really shapes how they relate to it or something. So I think metaphors can be a really useful and human way of kind of exploring it's often something that's quite dry and you know, kind of technological and difficult to relate to. I think
0: it, it is interesting with these metaphors. So I want to ask ask you in a spirit of playfulness as well. But like, mm-hmm. what is the most what is the most dangerous metaphor, if you will, in education technology these days?
1: I think about the most dangerous. Well, certainly, some of the most prevalent ones um, are the insert whatever the most current business model is in silicon valley for education so we've had like uber for education you know netflix for learning those kind of things and uh, it's, it's it's always puzzles me kind of why people take that whatever the kind of latest business might go hey we could do that for education um and often those business models are, are based on not very good labor practices we ought to say <laughs> so i'm not sure we want to adopt some of those but also they kind of really fundamentally misinterpret what's different about education you know so in the book i break down why the uber for education model just isn't very good really in a way because you know if you think about uber you're getting a taxi ride basically and there's got kind of lots of things about a taxi ride that are completely different to education you know a taxi ride is short whereas you know higher education takes a long time a taxi ride is usually, usually something you do on your own maybe with a couple of other people but you know whereas education is something you do with a cohort you know you know how to get a taxi ride where you don't, really know how to educate yourself. Otherwise you'd be doing that and so on. And there's kind of lots of really fundamental differences. So the differences are more significant in many ways than the similarities. And people often concentrate and say, Oh, just as we've kind of done this for taxi drivers, we could do it for educators. So we can just go to someone and get the education they want. And I think kind of fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of education is, is a real issue. I think.
0: No, it's interesting. And I, I, you also take to task the media at times in your in your book. Mm-hmm. I am a member of the media, so I, <laughs> I, I, I feel um but i but I take your points to heart. I mean, but in in a way, it's one of those things where you see those um, headlines are the ones that people would read. I mean, they're wanting to understand the complex technology coming out. So yeah. I, I'm not necessarily defending some of these headlines because I know I'll get a lot of Twitter hate right now, but <laughs> um but but I guess just to play devil's advocate of like how how do you then have, you know, kind of encourage a broader discussion of some of these complex ideas without falling into overly reductive metaphors, right?
1: Yeah. I think it's that's a very good question. And I think I think metaphors are your way in, so in some ways I'm saying, you know, they are really useful. But I think sometimes when they're, they've been sold as a kind of a business idea, there was, and you see these kind of headlines, you know, um, here comes the blockchain university or the Airbnb for professors kind of things. And then you think, where did this idea go two years later? That's kind of disappeared. And I think it'd be good to follow up on those ideas. I think so. I think in some ways you need metaphors that are open for questioning. It's that I think it's a bit like this, you know, but it's not like this in these ways. I mean, the point about metaphors is they're, never a perfect match So if they were a perfect match they'd be the thing you know it's like there must be bits that don't match across you know so so it's good to explore where those bits don't match and whether they're relevant or not so i think you know metaphors as a as a starting point for discussion are really useful but metaphors as framing the problem to prevent discussion if you like are, are not helpful
0: so it sounds like for your advice for me and for readers and listeners would be just check to uh, push back against those metaphors as well as 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 use them as a way in.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that another issue we need to be careful of: they're very powerful metaphors, and that power is also, you know, with, with great power comes great responsibility, kind of thing. You know, I, I think they can also be very exclusive. You know, it's like if I was to use a, a metaphor to you about you know a, a British TV series in the nineteen seventies. You know, for other people in, who grew up in Britain in the nineteen seventies. They might get that metaphor, but you would be like, "That doesn't." That kind of excludes me from that conversation. So, you know, you have to be very careful about those kind of things. I think as well.
0: Oh, that's that's a good point. What would be that show for you? I,
1: I, I uh... <laughs> well, actually, I'm now <laughs> going to say it. it's probably going to be an American show. <laughs> oh. Sco- Scooby Doo or something, you know? It's like, but... <laughs> Oh, that's good.
0: Sure, right now people might be like, "What?" Yeah, sometimes uh, lately I've been. We were joking with some friends the other day of like, "Leave It to Beaver" is one of those shows that isn't enduring like you can't find it anymore and so if i make a leave it to beaver comparison i am really dating myself (laughs) a and b and b i'm not connecting because people are like i i don't that's not yeah yeah this is not something i i know um no that's a really good point so okay so i asked you we talked about what the kind of a a negative or most a dangerous metaphor but what about them what's the most helpful metaphor these days in something ed tech related
1: um i think i'm not sure there's there's one i think it's whichever one resonates with people you know so um in the book for instance, i talk about uh, there's some music metaphors i think and i think that they're both great and really off-putting for some people so there was the idea of punk a few years ago Uh, and i talk about there's the idea of the educator as dj and stuff i think those are those if you if you're into that it's actually a really useful way to kind of reframe it and think about the role of the educator and what we do in education but if you're not into that kind of music it's interesting how off-putting that is i think there's a kind of i remember when edu punk was around it was kind of there was certainly a kind of middle-aged men trying to relive their youth for kind of vibe about it which i think put a lot of people off so i think that they're they're a kind of good example of both both sides of that i think you know they're kind of powerful and 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 dangerous at the same time and i think similarly with kind of uh pedagogical metaphors i think you know um uh, so I talk about rhiz- rhizomatic learning, it's kind of a very explicit metaphor. And then I think the met- metaphor is really powerful. You know, it's like rhizomatic plants, which kind of send shoots out underground and pop up and they're very resilient and those kind of things. Um, but equally, you know, it's a very strong metaphor and you almost have to understand the metaphor in order to be able, for that to be an effective way to learn. So I think in all cases like with this, it's it's really a case of whether the metaphor resonates with the person you're trying to communicate with, I think, you know. I think it's, um, I talk, in strange way. I talk about the lecture as a metaphor, you know, for online learning. And that's, which I've, I really saw a lot of during the during the pandemic, you know, and now we've sort of gone back to face-to-face, people are very much, oh, why can't we just go back to doing face-to-face lectures? It was interesting that we didn't have any other models for online learning, apart from the online lecture, you know, it's like, and you saw lots of headlines about, you know, We're not going to pay for people to have online lectures. And so it's almost, it's it's strange where, you know, the lecture itself is a metaphor, I think, for how we conduct online learning. Uh, And that's both powerful in that people know how to use it and it's useful. It kind of gives you a good model, but it's also negative in that it restricts our, our sort of sense of what we can do online.
0: Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about what we've learned or what, from the pandemic and what, what sort of happened to the narrative around education and education technology in the last couple of years. One of the things that I was struck by is you have this line in the book that you say the online pivot demonstrated that the university could function without the campus, but not without the technology. I thought that was a really interesting way of like, that somehow there was, even though the it sounds like the, te- you know, in an emergency room of learning, it was not, certainly not an ideal education as many commentators have pointed out, but that somehow it showed the technologies um, kind of, you know, that we somehow can't live without it. In a, but in some ways we were able to live without a campus for a couple of years. But could you say a little bit more about, about this? And yeah. Uh, yeah. It, what, what do you make of it?
1: it was, I mean, it was, you know, uh, obviously a scary time to live through, but also a very interesting time, I think, for those of us who are in educational technology, because, you know, at, within a month or two um, sort of, what I think UNESCO said something like 85% of the world's population were, Having their learning delivered online and, and that's a massive scaling up <laughs> task you know it's like that's an incredible achievement in many ways, like even if the learning wasn't that great you know it's like it's still the scaling up is is the result there you know that's the kind of, and it took you know lots of educational technologies and instructional designers you know put an enormous amount of work to try and do that shift on online and so uh, the metaphor I used in the book is around the idea of resilient structures and robust structures and and the internet itself you know. Are being designed to be a robust system, um, and I think what the pandemic did was expose a lot of the frailties in and, and weaknesses in our higher education system. you know, We we all go to one location, the campus. You, know, you might have several campuses, but they kind of do the same sort of thing. You know, we'll go, all the students go at the same time. Um, all the resources are located there, like in the library or the computer rooms. You know, uh, the social interaction happens there in cafes or bars or whatever. And so once that central location closed down like there was and you know things like high stakes assessment in terms of exams happen again in this face-to-face location once you close it down it's like how do we realize all these different functions of higher education whereas you know online those things could be realized in many different ways and you could have online resources and you can have group rooms you could have chat sessions or whatever you know it's like online teaching and stuff and so it was a much more robust system um and i think it you know, we've been through the pandemic, but there are other crises coming along, you know, uh, whether climate change will cause these. You know, in the UK, it's certainly at the moment we're going through an energy crisis, which is going to be difficult for campuses to maybe maintain lots of uh, uh, heating and lighting in buildings that aren't used much. You know, and, and we're seeing conflicts in the Ukraine. So I think having a crisis is going to become part of the norm in a way. So we need to have a kind of much more robust higher education system. And I use the sort of, example of distance education universities as being designed to be kind of decentralised. I'm not suggesting we all become distance education universities, but I think there's elements of that that we could build into our higher education design. And then it's been strange to watch kind of, as the pandemic has sort of come to an end, even though it hasn't come to an end in many ways, but um, how there's been a real kind of backlash, I think, against online education and educational technology. And certainly uh, in the UK here, we've had headlines know, like if students don't go back to campus, if universities don't make students come back to campus, then they're going to cut their funding. You know, it's like they must stop doing online lectures as if, like, the online part was, you know, some kind of, like, disease or something. You know, it's kind of very strange the way it's been treated, you know. It's like it, you think, hey, hold on, this this saved education. when you, <laughs> it's, it's portrayed as, like, a failure of education technology that sometimes that experience wasn't very good, and I accept that, but it's not framed as a failure of the campus that they had to kind of resort to this model within, you know, the space of a few weeks. So I think, you know, it, it seems quite strange to kind of like portray online learning as almost the, the bad guy in this scenario when in some ways it came in and saved them when it was needed. And I think, you know, if you were to carry on with that now you'd sort of improve that how you were doing that. And I think many universities are, you know, they're sensible. They know that they they need to be implementing some of this stuff, you know, but at the same time be delivering on campus and, you know, an on-campus face-to-face experience is is very useful and and rich for lots of things, but also they know they need to be moving to having some of these kind of hybrid elements that that work effectively for students. Doing that transition is is quite difficult, I think. Now you, you end the book with
0: some pretty concrete kind of advice um, for people at a college I believe is the, the main thrust, but somebody who is maybe recommending some, if you're, if a, an educator is in a position to recommend an education technology, you know, product or tool that you sort of have a, a list of, of takeaways, some things that they might consider to, to, to help them understand, to work through um, what they should pick in the face of, in a world where there's, you know, obviously these these metaphors are prevalent, in the, yeah. as you say, in, in the media and in the sales pitches and in then in the culture. Could you, maybe not all of them, but could you say a couple of of key ones, you think? If somebody is having to choose some technology, what, you know,
1: what can guide them? I think, yeah, so um, one of them i touched upon already, which is kind of avoid the hype and question the metaphors, I think, you know, so if people are coming to you with a very powerful metaphor that you're sort of being pitched, you know, I think that's that's important, and you are going preps now and ready for for defence. You know, with with my book and the question, and I think kind of focusing on achievable goals as well. I think is is really important. You know, I've, I've been part of universities seen The universities do things where they're kind of trying to implement these major changes that kind of require. And and the thing about universities and education, they're kind of very complex interconnected systems it's like it's it's not easy to change one piece without having to change another piece which means you then got to change this piece over here before you know it you've got to entirely restructure your your entire university and everything you're trying to do there and suddenly you know you're you're three years into this project and you know and it's just everyone's getting complete burnout. so i think often it's quite good to kind of focus on things you can do you know what can we do within a year what would work within that time frame you know and then within a year. um, yeah, I think you know, you know, within a year, you know, sort of one presentation, see how we're getting on, and then sort of scale it up, you know. But I think this idea that you always have to do the big bang change and kind of the, the kind of revolution within your your institution, I think, is always uh, dangerous. And perhaps the last one I'll, I'll say is that there are quite a few in there. Right? You know, it's talking educational terms. I'm always puzzled by this. Like, you know, I often see uh, people who are trying to sort of promote change in, in higher education through through technology they're talking either uh business terms or technology terms and those aren't the things that kind of get educators out of bed in the morning you know i remember uh going through some change here and and, and someone was trying to talk about we're going to concentrate on our b to c business it's like you know business to customers well, A, you know, what do you think we've always done at a university? But also that's really not the kind of language that, you know, resonates with educators. You know, if you're talking about, hey, it means we can support students better or, you know, we can innovate in these areas or we can have a more diverse curriculum, that those are the kind of things that people care about, you know. So I think, you know, framing it within things that matter to people is the most important part, I think.
0: Great. Well, um, I really appreciate your sharing sharing these insights and, and metaphors from your book. Um, and thanks so much for, for, <laughs> for your time. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you interviews and stories about innovation in education. That makes us like the planet money of education, to use a metaphor. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at JR Young. Music this episode by Komaku. The tracks are Tale on the Late and In Ruins. Do you have a favorite edtech metaphor or one that particularly bugs you? We would love to hear it. Just call us and tell us about it. Leave a voicemail at our new call-in number, 202-990-8525. That's 202-990-8525. Or you can email me at jeff at edsurge.com we might include your response in a future episode. We'll be back next week as always with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.